Thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host Beth Matthews. Today on the program I'm going to be speaking with Professor Ruth Kinner about working together in times of crisis. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm a, um, an academic, I'm a political theorist and historian of ideas and I have particular interests in, in anarchism, particularly late 19th century and, and early 20th century anarchism, but also in, in contemporary radical politics. Um, I studied at Queen Mary University of London and I did a, um, an undergraduate degree in history and politics, so that's the sort of the subject areas I, I sort of straddle. And then I did a, a PhD, which looked at the, at the, the anarchist um, writings of, of Peter Kropotkin, um, who's often regarded as one of the, the key writers of, of uh, the, the late 19th century. And what was it that inspired you to study working together in times of crisis? Well, I suppose, I mean, I come, because I, because I was familiar with, with anarchist writings, I mean, that's where I, I come into this. And I, mean, I, I was familiar, I suppose there are two strands, really. One is a sort of, that comes from, from thinking about direct action and what that involves. Uh, and the other comes from thinking about um, how activist groups work uh, internally. So, I mean, on the first one, it, it became obvious to me doing some work on, um, on the global justice movements of the, of the late 90s and, and early 2000s. But one of the things that was going on in the protest movements was a degree of organisation and, and self-help, uh, which was designed to sustain activists in, in significant um, activism. So, for example, there was a lot of skill sharing that was going on. There was a lot of uh, legal aid that was given to people on an informal basis by activists. There was a lot of medical care and the, the development of, of, of activist medical care when you're facing things like tear gas and the rest of it. So that there was this idea of, a, of a, what's called a do-it-yourself ethic and an idea of, of voluntary organising for transformative change. So that was one of the things that, that, that got me into it. And then it became, as I got, I got more interested, it became very obvious that in, in moments of, of crisis, uh, so after uh, natural disasters, for example, that a lot of the things that anarchists said about uh, the theory of, of cooperation were being uh, evidenced in, in practice. So if you look at, at what happened in the aftermath of, say, something like Hurricane Katrina, where there was very little state support that went into, particularly to the black communities that had been affected by the hurricane, actually the support that did go in was provided by voluntary groups and associations who worked with local people in order to provide uh, basic for basic needs and for protection and for food and for, for all kinds of facilities so that the, the organisations that were being set up on the ground were actually autonomous and they were, they were driven by the capacity of volunteers to, to help local people and support local people in doing what they wanted to do to, to, to pick themselves up again and to, and to protect and grow their communities. So that was one of the things that got me into it. And then the other thing, I suppose, is this idea of what I, I'm going to do some work with a, um, a colleague of mine in Exeter, Alex Pritchard, which we call constitutionalising. And it's about the ways that, that leaderless um, or horizontal organisations try and sustain themselves 
in their in their voluntary cooperative activity over time and these two things for me come together and and have been particularly important in the in the recent pandemic because i think what we're seeing is not only um, activists and, and all kinds of voluntary groups springing into action but we also see a sort of a complete disruption of our of our everyday lives and the possibility of perhaps organizing differently once this virus is 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 under control could you explain about the history of mutual aid yeah sure so it's i mean there's i think there's a um, a very commonsensical understanding that mutual you know you can you can find mutual aid being used by by all sorts of groups and and associations but it has a particular uh, significance, I think, in, in anarchist writing. And that's largely because of the, the work that, that Peter Kropotkin, this 19th century anarchist, did um, in the, from the, I suppose, 1880s, 1890s. Kropotkin was a geographer and a, as well as a sort of political writer and propagandist for anarchism. And one of the things that he wanted to do was to, to challenge what was then a very popular thesis about evolutionary change and he wanted to respond to um, a social Darwinist argument that interpreted the idea of uh, the survival, um, the struggle for existence as a very aggressive concept of nature. So the idea of nature being red and tooth and claw, the idea of nature being this, this really sort of violent uh, condition and he believed, I mean, not, not, he wasn't alone in, in, in thinking this, but he saw that, that this model of nature was being used as a, a principle for social organisation and in order to legitimise a principle of individual competition or what was called by the social Darwinists the survival of the fittest. And that this justified all kinds of exploitative and aggressive behaviours in our, in our everyday lives. And what Kropotkin wanted to do was to argue that competition was only one factor explaining evolutionary success and that the other factor was, uh, was cooperation. And that if you looked at the way that the, all kinds of non-human animals behaved in nature, what you found was that they, they worked together. They cooperated with each other in order to provide for their, their survival. So he took this idea and he, he gave it a sort of, um, I suppose, a sort of sociological and an ethical dimension. So in terms of the sociology, Kropotkin argued that the, the predominance of, of competition over cooperation was linked to environmental conditions. So we had a choice as human beings. We could either create institutions that encouraged us to cooperate with each other or we could build institutions that encouraged us to be competitive, to make ourselves rivals. And he said, and if you look at, at anthropology and if you look at history, actually the way that most human social groups have, have organised themselves is to build institutions for cooperation. They haven't wanted to compete with each other. They've wanted actually to, to live in, in mutual trust and, and in practising mutual aid. And he explains the rise of competition as a result of, of bad institutional design, if you like. The fact that we, we've, we've tended to organise in the modern world by centralising power in the state and by encouraging production for profit through capitalism. So he says, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is not an inevitable way of organising. It's, it's simply a, a social choice and it's one that we can, that we can change. 
And the reason that we should change it, um, he takes from the ethics of mutual aid, and he describes the, this as the, the ability or the, the capacity to assist or help others without expecting reward. So he tells, the, he tells a story of a, of a child floundering in a, in a river and three people on the riverbank watching this child. And he, he looks at their motives for the, each one of them jumps in to rescue the child, but he looks at their motives and he says the first person is a Christian and jumps into the, to the river to, to rescue the child in hope that there will be reward in the afterlife for the good act. And the second person jumps into the river and is a utilitarian. So this is a person who, who wants to maximize their pleasure in life. And the reason this person jumps in is, is because it's going to make them feel good to be the savior of this child. And the third person just jumps in and returns the child to the parent. And the parent says, you know, thank you very much. You know, you've, you've saved the life of my child. And the reply that the third person gives is, I could not do otherwise. So this is an, in, an instinctive, impulsive action in order to, or, which describes a willingness, if you like, to risk your own well-being for the sake of somebody else's. And Kropotkin's argument is that we, if we encourage this sentiment, actually, we all live better lives because we all, we have to trust each other, we have to cooperate with each other, and we have to build associations which enable us to, to provide this kind of support. And it seems to me that that's exactly the kind of support that you're seeing in this, in this pandemic. So how would an anarchist society be structured? So anarchists have different ideas about, I think, how, how, how to structure things. But the, the basic principle, I suppose, is one that's referred to as decentralised federation. So the idea is that you build from the bottom up by linking small groups and associations together by mutual agreement. And that can be, in a, that can be a formal agreement. It can be written down as long as it's revisable. Or it can be an informal agreement, which is simply based on on practices but the principle is that you can you can use any kinds of associations that you find in in your everyday life so labor associations community associations schools whatever it happens to be and these groups come together on a local basis in order to provide for their needs and then federate horizontally with other groups and associations so that you can have broader kinds of interactions and exchanges there is another model within that which has become popular in recent years and it's associated with the ecologist, the social ecologist Murray Bookchin and it's called democratic confederalism and it's the model that's being adapted in, in Rojava in northern Syria and, and that's based on thinking rather than thinking about federating local groups and associations on the basis of their mutual agreement. It's, it's based on bringing people together in, in small democratic fora and then using those democratic sort of organisations to federate out in a similar way. But it's, it's based on, on democratic decision making. I think that a, a good way of, of trying to think about how this works in, how this can, can work in practice is to, to think about how, how we have current kind of global organisations which which operate without any kind of central or permanent points of authority. And I think that's the key to decentralised federation, that you don't have single points of authority. You don't have, you have multiplicity always. So if you think about university systems, 
Um, actually, universities manage to share an exchange. I mean, not perfectly, but they do manage to share and exchange ideas across the globe through mutual sharing and, 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 and trust. Um, and they don't have any kind of central structure to enable them to do this. And so that kind of idea of networking across, I think, is, is uh, not only possible, but it's, uh, uh, it's a model that can be adapted uh, quite readily. How would an anarchist society be better equipped to deal with pandemics than the capitalist system we live under? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tricky question. I mean, for me, I think it's not an either or. It's not either the state or anarchy. Um, and I, I, I can't, certainly not in, in, in my lifetime, imagine that we're going to be disbanding the state soon but I think there are ways that you can think about changing the kinds of structures that we have so if you don't think of anarchy as the alternative to the state but as something that can happen within the state then I think you have ways of, of, of evaluating the success if you like of principles of mutual aid and anarchist organization so I mean it seems to me that what we're seeing in a lot of, of uh, a lot of parts of the world is uh, exactly community organizing so volunteer groups coming together and meeting people's i mean particularly vulnerable people's needs in ways that the state simply can't do and the advantages of being able to encourage these groups or foster more of this kind of experimentation, I think, comes from the fact that they, they can respond rapidly to their situation. They have the know-how. They know, that they know their, their own environments better than anybody else. They know the people who live in their environments. They have the relationships that enable people to uh, extend their reach, if you like, in, in very um, productive ways. So they can work differently from a, a bureaucratic uh, organisation. And I think it's also true that the, what we're seeing in, in the bureaucratic organisations, if you like, in the, in the health services and in, 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 in the, the health care and in, even in you know, the retail sectors, what you're seeing on the ground is actually people going into work and practising mutual aid uh, not because they're being paid particularly well and not because they're not at, at considerable risk. Actually, they're, they're not paid very well. They are at considerable risk and they're still doing this. So the only way that we get through this pandemic is, 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 is by relying on people's mutual aid and their willingness, actually, to, to, to help others at, at times of enormous need, even at cost to themselves. Well, here in Australia in April 2020, there were large queues of people that had just lost their jobs outside the Centrelink offices. And one man who was a small business owner and he was really suffering himself, he just walked up and down and he was handing out $100 notes to people in the queues. <laughs> so why do you think it is that people feel driven to help each other through the coronavirus crisis? Yeah, it's a, I think that's a tricky question and really interesting too. I mean, I, I mean, intuitively, I would say, I mean, some of the things that I've heard, I suppose, um, just on on the radio or reading the, you know, the the, the, the news is this this reevaluation that seems to be going on. The idea of being threatened by some random um, illness 
and being taken away from your loved ones or, or being separated from your loved ones and, and the, the enormous uncertainty of all of that, I think has, at least in some people, caused them to, to think about what matters in life, you know, what the priorities are, what, you know, what, what we value most. And, and money is great, particularly if you don't have it, but it's if you do have it, it's really not the most important thing. And it's the human relationships and that ability to 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 show care that I think uh, is touching a lot of people in the in the current situation. Could you explain what community support is? So the, the way I mean, I think um, you know it can take different. It can take on different meanings for different groups of people, and and I quite like the the way that it's 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 quite broad. So any anybody that any kind of local association or organisation that helps or it's designed to help on a local level can be called community support. I think within an anarchist framework, it's it's a particular thing, and it's linked to what's sometimes called a do-it-yourself or do-it-ourselves culture. So the, the point of, of organising locally and on a voluntary basis is to promote, as direct action, a transformative change. So to think about how services, how life can be organised differently and on different principles and principles which, which put care at the top of the agenda. How do you think we could preserve community-based organisation in a post-coronavirus world? I think it's going to be very difficult because I suspect that one of the things that's going to happen in, as a result of the, of the economic um, shutdown is, is that there's going to be a, a lot of austerity. And, and I think it's paradoxical that, that precisely when the, the health crisis is, is deemed to be over, actually we're going to be potentially um, entering into a, uh, a very severe economic crisis where you need exactly the same kinds of voluntary support and, and, and do-it-yourself ethics to, to get people through. And, and the risk is that you know, the, the people who are involved in these groups and associations are going to suffer burnout, that they won't have the resource, they, they won't have the, the, uh, the time. And it's, I think it's very difficult, but I think one of the things I'm interested in doing right now is trying to find out exactly what kinds of resources and, you know, and that may be in, in terms of time or, or money or, or whatever it is, but what resources would help the groups that, that we see springing up now continue to function when we, we move from one crisis into another. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? No, I think that's, um, it's been really interesting. It's been re and very nice to talk about mutual aid. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have any future study plans within this field? Yeah, so I mean, what I, what I really want to do is to, to look at the ways that, that uh, groups have been operating in, in different environments on the ground during the crisis not only in the UK, but also, I mean, you know, as far as I can in, in other parts of the world and to collate that information and share the best practice that the, that the, the groups themselves have, have taken away from, from their experiences.
Yeah, so how do you plan on doing that? What, what's your approach to doing that? So at the moment I'm trying to, to, to build up a, um, a network of people who I, partly some of the people I know, um, and then people I have contacts with, so that we can get loosely put, I suppose, partners or people that we can, we can start doing some co-production with and talk to them about what they've been doing, how they've been doing it, um, how easy they've found the, uh, the work that they've done, how they evaluate the success of their work in terms of, of their own um, principles of operation. And then trying to, I think at the moment, I'm, the way I'm headed is to, to think about how you communicate that best practice and those lessons, if you like, in very accessible ways. Because, it, I mean, it seems to me that, that, that mutual aid is, is not just for anarchists. Mutual aid is for everybody. But it takes a degree of, of know-how and confidence to be able to, to organise in this way and to know how to do it. So that's, that's really what I want to do. That's, that's, that's the plan. Yeah, there's, there's just been so many cases of people helping, helping one another. But I, I think also... Um, apart from the one-on-one -on -one approach, there's also been organisations that have actually been helping people and like elderly people and people with disabilities that haven't been able to actually get to the shops. So yeah. they've actually given them an hour in the morning so that they can actually go and do their shopping without the, the crowds of people and the rush. And I think it's, and even with the home delivery service as well here in Australia, if if you fall into the category of a vulnerable person, they're doing home deliveries to you as a priority. And I, I think that it's something that organisations have never really thought about in the past. Actually, you know, to, to give a bit more consideration to people and... Uh, rather than you know just one on one as well, is has there been any um, cases of that in the UK? Yeah, so so the yeah the big retailers have have a priority system, but how well that's working, I've I, I just don't know. I mean, if you go online as a non-priority person, then it's clear that you can't get a delivery slot. But I mean, there are I think as well as the big retailers, the there is there are also smaller producers, so local farmers, local cooperatives these kinds of groups um, who have been completely overwhelmed with the, the sudden surge of, of demand and who have in some cases completely reorganized their their supply what they offer in order to provide for um, for needs if you like rather than a huge range of of other stuff that people might want but actually you know you could probably live without but in order to get fresh fruit and vegetables to people there's been a lot of reorganisation that's going on, and I think it would be very interesting to speak to to food producers in particular um, about how these uh, supply lines work. I mean, I know that at the moment in the UK, I mean, I read on the on the news yesterday that because of the shutdown of the of hotels and coffee bars and all this kind of stuff, the milk markets have completely collapsed. So the farmers who have been producing milk primarily for for hospitality uh, sectors are now just chucking this stuff away. Uh, it's, it's just being chucked. They have no, no, one's, no one's picking it up. They can't, they can't do anything with it. So it's just going to waste. And similarly, you have you know, egg producers who, who have normally who would supply McDonald's and the burger bars 
they can't distribute their product because they don't have the right um, boxes to get this out to people. So there are all kinds of disruptions of trade that seem to me to be worth looking at in the longer term and to th really think seriously about how, we, how we're growing, providing and distributing food. And, and, and that, that would be a, a fantastic project to, to look into, I think. Yeah, it certainly would. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> and I've been speaking with Professor Ruth Kinner about working together in times of crisis. That's all we have time for today. And Thanks so much for listening to the program. 